All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Those who were ordained to eternal life believed they were already true worshipers of God. And just as Abraham believed in faith, not in Christ, but faith in God for Abraham, it's the same type of faith. Are you a true worshiper of God? And now that the Messiah is here and the call is now to believe on him, those that did really love God are now saying yes. Hello, everybody. So today I'm talking with Jason Brita from the Living Christian YouTube channel. And I'm assuming a lot of you will likely be familiar with Jason and have probably watched some, if not all of the videos he's put out on his channel. But he is a former Calvinist and he has put out like a five part series kind of explaining his process, his reasoning for leaving Calvinism and also walking through a lot of the you know Calvinist proof texts and so, you know, we, we get into a lot of different things. Jason shares some about his story and, and why he left Calvinism. And then we get into a bit of a discussion about Acts 13:48, And then finally, Jason gives some of his thoughts on the golden chain of redemption in Romans 8. So with all that said, again, don't forget to subscribe to Jason's YouTube channel if you haven't yet. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Jason, thank you so much for being on today. Uh, I've I've been spending the last couple of weeks watching through your videos, you know, and I'm sure a lot of people are familiar with with your content because I know it's been, I mean, some of your videos have gotten, uh, it's like 30,000 views, I think, or, or somewhere around there. So they're doing really well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is pretty awesome. But, you know, I think the first thing I kind of wanted to get your take on is like, what was your motivation, I guess, to do this in the first place? Why did you want to get on YouTube and and share about this publicly? Really, like, why did you think this is important? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, it's an it's a question that's been asked by people that are Calvinists. And I think they're, they want to know because, you know, what is the reason why? Um, James White also asked the same question, what is the motivation behind why you're doing what you're doing. And, and so just to give you some context of like background and kind of who I am and, and what I grew up in, I grew up in the church, uh, since the age of two years old, basically. Um, I was part of a youth group. Uh, it was a, uh, what would be known as an Arminian type church. Uh, and I met my wife, um, we got married in that church. We had our first two kids in that church. And as a result of wanting to, to dive in deeper into God's word, um, we didn't feel like the church was the right place for us. And we wanted to, we started our own Bible study to try to, you know, add in to 
on top of going to church. But it eventually turned into we want to go find a new place of fellowship and one that actually spends a little bit more time diving into the meat of the word and not just the spiritual milk, if you will. And so so on our church search, we went to a lot of places that felt like it was the exact same thing that we were at. And then the the one point I'm like, I told my wife, Chelsea, I said, I think we just maybe just need to go back to the church that I grew up in because every other church feels like it's the same. And she's like, well, let's try this one last church. We know a couple people there. And, and I said, okay, all right, well, we'll go. But I was, I was trying to find ways not to go. We went and I was, this was my first exposure to being, to being in a church that did expository preaching. And so that was like a breath of fresh air. And I walked out of that, walked out of the service telling Chelsea, she looked at me, she goes, what'd you think? And I'm like, I think I learned more about the Bible in this one Sunday morning than I have in like probably a year and a half combined anywhere else. And, and so I was just, I was blown away by that the word of God could be taught in context so well. Now I've, I grew up, you know, listening to WCRF. That's the radio station local to us that hosts a lot of people um, that are Calvinistic, John MacArthur being one of them and not even knowing what expository preaching even was, but I should, I should back up just ever so slightly that one of the reasons why we did also go into the, the church search is that I was desiring to pursue pastoral ministry and, and in the denomination that we were in, there were some things that I didn't align with theologically that, um, they would say you need to have in order to be a pastor. And I, I couldn't find that anywhere in scripture. So, so that also helped embark the thing, uh, to, to search for a new place. And the church that we did, um, recently leave from, uh, did leadership training within the church. And so it just felt like it, everything was right. And so, but I didn't know that they were Calvinistic. You know, when you don't know Calvinism, mm-hmm. you don't know what you're getting into. You hear people talk about this is God's word and they focus on, hey, we want to make sure that we get the text right, line by line, verse by verse, and we're going to expound upon what the text says. And so the approach of expository preaching absolutely definitely helps people get the text, I think, more right. But what I did not know at the time is that what I've come to find out and what I do believe actually happens a lot of times is that when people use, you know, if they come to the position of like accepting that Calvinism is true and the five points and just reform theology doctrines of grace is that what they will end up doing is they will basically line by line, verse by verse. But when these particular texts come in, then it's like, oh, they, they forget the context in some cases and they insert Calvinism into the equation. And, but because it's, they're going line by line, verse by verse, you just think, oh, that's what it says. And if, if you don't know, you, you know, you, you just, you take it at, at their word. They're faithful. They're, they're, uh, they're spending more time in the word than I am. You know, it, you just get this idea of like, yeah, that must be the truth. And so I had to wrestle with that initially. And 
there was some early exposure. So we started listening to um, not only John MacArthur, but and honestly, I don't even remember anything specifically about John MacArthur that I was like, oh, I didn't know about that, about the Bible. You know, if he was talking anything that was Calvinistic. But we started listening to Paul Washer and just the the passion that he had for what he taught. And I think that you, you, you get like before 2010, like Calvinism was kind of starting to gain a lot of momentum at this point. And so it was just becoming more aware and more out there that way. So it then started to feel like, oh, this is right. The truth is coming out. This is what is what the Bible really communicates. And so I can't tell you how many um, debates I listened to on soteriology and people, and a lot of them were James White because he kind of had the uh, the market share on YouTube at the time of debates, mm-hmm. and and he would debate Michael Brown or various other people uh, on the topic of soteriology, specifically at different elements of Calvinism. And so, and so, well, we got we we came into the church ready to serve, ready to learn. I started an apprenticeship with the church, and. Um, met with the pastor every single week. I would memorize scripture verses. I would write um, summaries of, of sermons. We would go through different things, how to preach, how to, how to teach. I was getting involved in different areas of serving, you know, in the children's ministry and the student ministries ministry and, and just sharpening my knowledge of the word and the Bible and, and all of those things. And when I went in my own studies to then go to the scriptures, again, you're coming to it with these presuppositions that this is possibly true. And when you hear, and one of the things that I fell for was the false dichotomy that the only two positions that are out there is Calvinist or Arminianist. You know, that was the two Mm -hmm. positions that were out there that, okay, well, let's look at the two different views of how God works in salvation and what is the, what is the most biblical solution? And I, I do think if, if those are the only two options where I would, I would, you know, at the time, at least I would say, well, Calvinism gives God more glory. So that must be the more right position. So I just, I kind of fell into some of the traps that are there. I don't know if they're intended to be traps. I don't want to put that in terms of like, Hey, you're just, people are just being trapped, but just the way that it's done, it does it does draw you in to that. And again, I've always wanted to take the position that I want to submit to what the Bible says. So if the Bible says that, I will submit to it. And so that's that's where I was and looked up to people that I saw love the Lord. They uh, were shepherding uh, people and, and shepherding me and loving on my family and the church seeing them weep over people that, that go through hard times and then sh- having weekly meetings with the pastors where they're sharing like just their hearts over um, the brokenness that they see in the world and sin and all of this kind of stuff. You feel like, man, these people love the Lord and they desire to get the text right. And this is how they understand the Bible. It must be true. You know, when you look up to people that way, it, it's like, it must be true. Having talked to some people since I've left, I had a I had a gentleman that I didn't know too too well, but he he was very opposed to the videos that I started to make and just me leaving the church mm-hmm. in general, and 
and he ended up just telling me a whole long list of people that have influenced him throughout the years that were Calvinistic and was really trying to advocate there. These are great men of faith and, and I don't deny it. You know, I don't deny that there are people out there that love the Lord. And, you know, one of the things, I don't know if you get this on your channel um, much, Jordan, but I've got people firing comments away like all over the place. So like one of the one of the ways that people will comment is that Calvinism is not only just not right, but it's also it, it's a heresy that is damnable and we should throw it out completely. And, you know, like it's it's a cult. These people are not Christian. And and mm -hmm. I mean, they go to obviously the, the far extreme with it. Now, while I do affirm that mm -hmm. I don't agree with Calvinism, I also do not see that it is correct. And I think that that's why I'm part of it is why I'm doing these videos is to create awareness of it that we want to represent God correctly. And I think that even though when we look at how does God work in salvation, you know, there, there's this there are there is an element of mystery to some degree that God is just bigger than us and we're not going to understand every nook and cranny on how God works in particularly in salvation. But by and large, I think we have a good idea of how he has communicated who he is in his word. And when anyone misrepresents the God of the Bible, the one true living God, then I think there needs to be, there's a stance that there's something in us that say we want to correct people and so that they know who God really is. And so I'm not quick to say this person, this person, this person is not a believer just because they believe in Calvinism. Um, just as much as I wouldn't do that for anyone who would proclaim that they're an Arminian, which I also don't hold to, um, or a provisionist. You know what I mean? So like whatever position someone holds to and how they b believe God works in salvation, I'm not going to be quick to say you're not a believer because you hold to that. Um, in, in in some of those things, obviously, there's people that believe in uh, works based, and I would say that's a false gospel. But the hard thing to do is is Calvinism a false gospel? And I I, I hopefully address that well in m one of my videos. That I think that if you do adhere to full blown determinism, like someone who is a complete full blown decretal theology, I am a hyper Calvinist that knows that God has decreed all things, even the sin that we commit and on to that. I think it's a false gospel, but for most Calvinists and definitely the, the, the church that I came from where I would view that they're a compatibilist, there's just this mystery. God is fully sovereign and he's controls all things yet. We are responsible and culpable for everything. It's like, but there's a mystery in how those two things work together. And like I, I say in my video, I think that's God's grace over those people. I see fruit in their lives. I see the love for the Lord, love for the lost, love for each other. And I think it's it's a cognitive dissonance in just their understanding of what the scriptures are saying and what their position really holds to. And the appeal to mystery, I think, is God's grace, honestly, uh, over that. So um Hmm. I don't know if that fully <laughs> expounded or, or may, oh, so the motivation, sorry, that I guess to, to elaborate a little bit more is I've 
obviously I want to take a stand for the truth. The, the YouTube channel was initially focused on just biblical counseling. I was pursuing biblical counseling through ACBC and, and two years ago, finally became certified. And, and um, what started that pursuit was knowing I wanted to go into pastoral ministry and knowing that hearing so many pastors say that they feel like they're not equipped to handle shepherding people and that they end up passing people off. A lot of churches pass people off to what they would say, the, the experts. And, and I'm looking at Romans 15, 14, saying Paul telling the Romans that they are able to admonish, which the word is translated, you know, to counsel one another because they have the word. And the Roman church didn't even have the full canon of scripture, you know? And so it's just like the spirit has equipped us through the word to minister to the body. And we see that not only in Romans, but all over the New Testament. And, and then you hear statistics that are just heart wrenching that, and this is probably 10 years old data. So I don't know if it's gotten better. Hopefully it has, but in many, in a lot of cases, maybe it's gotten worse, but some of the statistics are that over 80% of pastors feel underqualified for the position that they hold. And oh, I think it's like 83, it's also in the 80s, um, percent mm. of pastor's wives wish that their, past, their, their husbands were not in the ministry because of how hard it is and discouraging it is and how much time it takes. And so that led me to um, pursue biblical counseling and to know the word to the best that we can and to encourage people to go and be good Bereans. And, and so that's what the channel kind of just stemmed from is that there, we have a lot of people in churches that just rely on the pastor to be the know-it-all. And a lot of people just are, want to just sit in the pews and, and I'll come in on Sunday, I'll hear the message and and God calls us to go to the word and to study it, to show ourselves approved. And, and that's what I'm trying to encourage. And so, but while I do that, yeah. I want to share what I'm working through and what I, what's, what's right. God's using, you know, in my life to draw things out. But as I say in my videos too, I, I don't want people to just go to, to, you know, just assume my theology because I want people to go to the word and to go and study for themselves and actually go through that. Um, so that they know, like, this is what the text says themselves. And I think a lot of people, and I'm at fault for this too, is I, I heard, I heard something, it sounded good, sounded logical. And I just assumed that theology as if it's my own. And I think that's just not a good thing to do because no matter how passionate somebody is, yeah. how much you think they spend in the word and how godly they are, they could have the text wrong. <clears throat> So, so that's, that's, yeah. that's the motivation is to encourage people to get back to the word, uh, help them find different study tools to help them and then give them the confidence that they have, that the Bible is the word of God and that they can use it to help other brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, know, know God, know him better and help each other out and build the church up. So, mm. yeah. One thing there that stood out to me that I, I just kind of wanted to, touch on for a minute at least is, is just how you're kind of articulating this idea that what 
you know, at least a, a prominent aspect of what drew you to Calvinism was was sort of this, you know, the these strong, prominent figures that were kind of purporting it. So it, you know, and you can say whether you agree with this or not, but it sounds like at least in some ways and maybe in some significant ways, it wasn't even uh, so much about, you know, their arguments being so convincing in the sense that it's like, oh, yes, this is, I do see that in the Bible. And I've always, I've always thought the Bible might have said something like this. And now he's just making it clear is more like, well, if, if these people who speak so passionately and, and they seem to know the Bible so much and they're saying this is true. And yeah, I can kind of see the, I see what the verses they're using. I see how they put that together. So it must be true. So it seemed like kind of that, you know, um, that influence of, of maybe just that initial, you know, impact of seeing the difference between somebody like, a you know, uh, Vody Bauckham or, you know, the, the, the strong, prominent pastors as compared to maybe other, you know, examples that you were used to that weren't quite so strong, quite so passionate or zealous or, or, yeah. you know, whatever other definition you want to use there. So how, I guess, yeah. would you say that's accurate? Would you say that that, that would be um, something that, you, you know, you, you would say applies to your situation? Uh, that it was yeah. kind of the influence of these, like the 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 strength of these figures, less less so maybe than how biblical they were actually being. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say I think some of the argumentation that they used was compelling, um, but also it was a combination of okay, my previous pastors before coming to that church never went through any of these passages so it was almost like i did not even realize these passages were mm-hmm. even there you know we never went through romans 9 never john yeah. 6 you know or if they did and i've listened to so many people that i don't even know i've just listened to them online that if i'm aware they're not a calvinist they'll even mention something um and it's it, they'll just like kind of breeze past it and and even some expository preachers they'll just kind of that are not Calvinistic. Yeah. They'll just kind of hop over the verse. They'll, they'll mention it, they'll read it. And then like, they just keep moving on. They don't expound upon it. And it's kind of like, well, what does that mean okay. from a non Calvinistic <laughs> perspective? I mean, you're not helping mm-hmm. me here, but here yeah, the Calvinists right. have an answer. It can be frustrating. Yeah. So the Calvinists have an answer to um, how they see the text. And, and if you then, I mean, Calvinism has had quite some time to kind of, really build its case and and i think that the systematic of calvinism is in and of itself all the all the parts work together it all makes sense i really don't know how people are like three point and four point calvinists because you really need all five points to make it all work together so so for those that you know i think those are people that hey i think that those are emotional arguments like i can't I can't drive with limited atonement, but um, but I, I can drive with the other ones because it seems like it's there in the text, you know. But they don't know why. I think it's more of an emotional thing. Like I don't know why I don't agree with that. Like scripturally, I just don't like the idea that Jesus only died for the elect. So they're a four point mm-hmm. Calvinist. So so yeah, I think it's it's lack of knowledge, it's lack of understanding, and then I think also 
a lot of Calvinistic churches don't like the label of Calvinism. And because if you just do a search on who John Calvin is, you're going to get people that are in favor of what he does. And you're going to get people that are going to talk about all the things that um, he did from, from a character standpoint are very, very, I think, very concerning. Um, and that's not talked about enough. And that's also not talked about almost at all by, by Calvinists. And I think one of the videos I did talked about when I, I, I used to go to the Together for the Gospel conferences uh, with, with my old pastors. And there was this display that they had in, in one of them. And for those that don't know, the, uh, the Together for the Gospel conference was put together by a bunch of Calvinists and and you look at the label, it's like together for, together for the gospel. Wow, that's that's great. That's what we're all about, right? And then everyone that's on there in terms of a panel speaker or a message giver are all Calvinists. There's not one that's not a Calvinist that's up there. Hey, we're also here in it for the gospel. And, you know, things like that you just don't realize until you really, really start digging into things. You just think, hey, these are guys who are biblical and they all agree that this is what the Bible says. You know, if you don't really know, it's like, oh, they're actually all Calvinists. <laughs> so mm -hmm. Alana actually made the comment one time and she goes, yeah, it's together for Calvinism. That's what that's what it, the mm -hmm. conference should be called. <laughs> and uh, I'm yeah. like, yeah, you're 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 right. And um, but they had this whole um, section on Martin Lloyd Jones, Martin Lloyd Jones and. Mm -hmm. I mean, I felt like this was like hyper glorification of him and his ministry. And I almost like, man, this almost feels like in some sense, idol worship. And I didn't even mm -hmm. like, and I'm bought and sold. Like I love Calvinism. Like I believe this is the truth at the time and still feeling this check in my it's spirit. So off. Yeah. Something just feels off. Why is there this magnification of a guy in his ministry? It's okay to, I think say, Hey, here is examples of how people have walked faithfully. And, but, you know what? We got to point mm -hmm. people to Christ. We got to point people back to the word. The, that This is the example that we have. And so just the hyper focus on individual yeah. men just seems a little weird. And it's it seems like you're, wow, well, what did they do? What did they believe? Well, these men yeah. that were glorifying believed in Calvinism, you know? So I don't know. So <laughs> Go ahead. That that's it's interesting that you point that out because I was I'm I'm reading through uh, a a book right now and just last night that kind of that thought just popped into my head and it's not something that was new to me it's a thought that I've had before and it, it's a little bit difficult to know how to even talk about this without just sounding like you're spouting off rhetoric and you know just intentionally pejorative. Mm -hmm. anti-Calvinism type type nonsense. And that's, right. that's really not, this is, this is just, this has been sort of like you're talk, kind of talking mm -hmm. about as a Calvinist, you had that, well, this is odd. The, the magnification of, of this man is, it just seems off. And so that's, I think as somebody who's always not been a Calvinist, but kind of just over the last decade, becoming more and more familiar with it, more and more familiar with specific Calvinist teachers and um, what, Something that has always stood out to me um, as, as you know, I've kind of had that same feeling of this is kind of odd um, and probably <laughs> gone a little bit beyond that, too. This is kind of very wrong, but it, it just has been that magnification of 
of people. It's it's you know when I think of a think of a Calvinist, I think of you know a yeah, um, burly man with a beard sitting in an office. But you know if I if I picture what that might look like, I'm gonna most likely I'm gonna imagine like a Charles Spurgeon bust up on the the bookshelf somewhere. Yeah, um, yeah. And it's like that, I'm not. There's nothing wrong with having a Charles Spurgeon bust in your office space, but it's just kind of that. I don't know that that culture of there is this like exaltation in a sense of like, you know, they would never, never say that these people are, you know, even apostles are on the same level as the apostles. Yeah. I, I wouldn't think, but, but there's, there is this, I don't even know how to, to describe it other than it's like too much emphasis on mm -hmm. men. And I've, I've never been able to help, but just to go to the first Corinthians one, like, you know, were you baptized in the name of Paul or Apollos or Peter? It's just like we all of us are just we're just we're we're fellow ministers. We're, you know, with you even. Uh, and 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 so I just think and again, Calvinists would not argue with that for a second. They would not for a second say, well, right. Charles Spurgeon is something more than that um, or, or, you know, John Calvin or Jonathan Edwards. Obviously not. No, they would they would agree with that. But I do feel like in practice, it's almost as, as if you can see at times, at least what comes out of the heart, maybe is is that there is too much preeminence given to these, you know, figures uh, mm -hmm. in, in many Calvinists. And I feel like I see this in in the some of the ways that, you know, I've heard John Piper talk about like Jonathan Edwards and kind of um, the, the yeah. exaltation yeah. and the, um, the degree of like, like affection. And I don't, I don't know. There's just mm -hmm. there. I think there's a, there's gotta be a balance between like, Hey, this is a, this is a person who's been highly influential in my life. He's helped me greatly in my walk with, with mm -hmm. Christ, my understanding of the Bible. Um, yeah. But but I don't know. Let letting it, letting him stay in at the right level, and and I think mm -hmm. it does seem. Uh, this is just my personal assessment. I could be wrong. It just seems like that becomes kind of mixed up in 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 uh, in the culture of, of Calvinism very often. And I feel like these men are given a prominence in people's hearts and their minds that is, I think, not fully healthy. Yeah, no, I 100% agree. And, and it's so easy, I think, to do that. I don't want to also label that Calvinists are the only ones to do that, because I think there's a lot of it's just yeah, it's definitely. easy to do to exalt. It's easy to do men. in general. Yeah, yeah. But it, but it's there. I mean, I do see it there uh, within Calvinism for sure. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So you ended up joining a reformed church. Um, and you know, I know you're a bit limited on time. So what I, th I think what I'd be interested in hearing is what, what were the things, you know, that, um, started to eventually make you doubt because you, you were in the church for, was it 10 years? I think if I remember right. Yeah, it was, it was 11 and a half, I think is the okay. actual time, but yeah. Okay. So then what were kind of some of the things that you'd, you know, 11 and a half years is a long time to, to be convinced of a certain 
theological position, and I'm sure that you were increasingly so um, over the years. Um, and so what, I guess, what were the things that started to make you think, you know, have the wait a minute, or how does that work? Or that doesn't seem to, to make sense with that verse or that verse. Well, how, right. how did that play out? Yeah. Well, so, I mean, like I mentioned, initially I would, as I was coming into it, I was listening to people and, and listening to debates and the scriptures that they used and hear expository sermons on what, you know, them expounding upon certain particular text message, you know, text of the scriptures. And then, mm -hmm. like, okay, now I, now I'm seeing it. So then I was, I, I was in it, you know, and I was a five point all the way. And because I believe that it was the truth of the scriptures and but I would continue to listen to debates in part because I wanted to always be able to give a reason why. I mean, I've I had family members that didn't believe it. So I in out of love for them and wanting them to believe the truth, I wanted to be able to be ready in season and out of season to just know how to respond. And what are the arguments that are coming against Calvinism? Uh, so that I can be aware of like, what are good responses that I can do so all doing all of this with the intent, like, I'm not just trying to win people over to my theology. I really did believe this is the truth. And I want people to know the truth. I want people to know who God is properly. But you know, this is with the guise of believing that Calvinism is true. So just continually, th you know, if there's been anything, I've just spent a lot of time just evaluating, soaking in, chewing on, it's been soteriology. And, and then uh, it, it actually was uh, Alana and her husband, Hector, who we were, we've been friends with for, for quite some time. Um, they came out and said, uh, we're not Calvinists anymore. And, and our initial response was, oh, okay. Wow. Well, I, where'd that come from? <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and just know is that not for one second did my wife and I ever feel like they were straying from the faith. They're just apostate or any, anything like that. Okay. Um, but it was like, okay, well let's, That's let's good. hear you out. So I ended up, uh, just asking questions. Well, what about X 1348? What about Ephesians one? What about first Corinthians two fourteen? What, you know, and I just started labeling all of these Calvinists. Well, what do you do with this? What do you do with that? You know, what do you think of the golden chain of redemption, which I know we're going to talk about, <laughs> you know, and, all of these things and and everything that they said was okay i get it i don't agree with it but if that's how you're seeing it but you know it you know it was like i don't i don't agree with you i can see how you could look at the text that way but i will say this is that it was enough of a pebble in our shoe to say you know what if there is anything here that is even remotely correct we need to go to the scriptures and evaluate it and you know god bless my wife she was one who i think she's she has been such a good helper for me to ask the hard questions and and i just see god using her to just ask ask really good questions to get me to think to get me to go and to the word and 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 study so um, I don't have it here. It's upstairs, but there's a, there's a book called an ESV New Testament Panorama Bible. And I don't write in my Bibles 
because I just I like it to be clean and stuff. But in this, it's like a 20 or $30 purchase and it's things massive. There's a ton of room to write. And I just went through that. And one of the things that I, I tackled first was the whole element of does regeneration precede faith or does faith precede regeneration? The Calvinist would say regeneration precedes faith. And so can I find explicit texts that were in there? And this, this was probably the thing that stuck out to me the most talking to Alana and Hector was it wasn't so much their responses to it, but there was a statement that they made that when they went to the text to validate that's what the text is actually saying in context, it wasn't saying what they originally thought it was saying. And so that's where it made me think, okay, I need to go to the text and learn it in context. And I, I can't tell you how hard, how hard it was to take off the glasses of my presuppositions, believing that Calvinism is true to then truly work through the scriptures and wrestle with it. Like it was, it was very, very hard, but the element that helped me get a kickstart is finding systematically, you know, all throughout the new Testament, where does regeneration precede faith ever? Um, where is that explicitly in the text? And I can't find a single verse. Now I can see how some people will make, that's what it's saying, but it doesn't actually explicitly say that. And, but there are tons of verses that's, that show us that faith precedes regeneration. And I think another thing too, just to mention is that a lot of Calvinists will just tell you, this is what it, what it is, they're already, they're just telling you Calvinistic theology, they commute, this is what it is. It's absolutely true. And they run with that. And then they, and then they go to the text. So they tell you it's true. And then they go to the text. And then you're already assuming what they're saying. Oh, it's already true. Well, there it is. Instead of I'm going to the text and I'm, tr I'm going to expound upon it. So it's, it's like a reverse of doing proper exegesis now. It's like, I'm going to the text with my presuppositions. And I'm telling and communicating to you that it's true. And then I'm going to read the text and ha make sure that you see what I'm seeing. I just, it's, I, I, I see that also a lot too, um, from, hmm. from Calvinists lately. So mm -hmm. I, I just ended up, uh, not seeing that. And it was at this point where I was working through this. And knowing that there was probably some other elements of uh, things that I needed to work out, obviously, like, I feel like I just opened Pandora's box and I needed to, like, now go down the rabbit hole and find out what else, what else is there beyond this. And I was kind of of this interpretation initially it was, well, maybe both are true and God is just mysterious and, and you know, Calvinism is true. And the people that are not Calvinists, they're also right in their interpretation. It's just, it's just a big mystery still. And obviously coming to, you know, from the point of being a compatibilist, it was very easy to gravitate to thinking that way. But it was at this point where my pastors uh, came to me and they said, we're ready to put you forward to the congregation and, and announce we, we want you to, to be a part of the pastoral staff of the church. And I was like, <laughs> Perfect what are you timing. doing, God? 
something I've been striving for uh, for a long time and, you know, feeling the call that way. And and I said, guys, I, I got to tell you, past few months I've been working through soteriology and I'm at the point now where I'm not seeing regeneration preceding faith. That's where I was. And I think they were they were good. I mean, like the conversations were 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 done well. I mean, like full of love, all of that stuff. All of that was just done very, very well. They didn't agree with me, obviously, but they listened. And and you know, I would just say everything from that point of view was done very well. And and they even saw like, well, I don't know if it's just for generation preceding faith because if that is what you're where you're at, then there probably is more that you're, you know, that's going to just going to happen, I guess, as a result of, you know, if you believe that faith precedes regeneration, there's other implications to soteriology that's going to be affected as a result of that. And I was hopeful at the time that maybe there wasn't, but obviously as I continued to do my studies, there obviously was. So, um, so yes, that's, that's, uh, what got me going. And it was probably a year and a half of all I did in my spare time was just study, study, study. And, and that's, so, that's what happened. So re regeneration pre precedes faith. I mean, it, it, it does seem like the internal consistency of Calvinism in a sense works against it in that if, if one of these elements breaks down it seems like the whole thing crumbles and and so right. yeah you know regeneration precedes faith seems to be one of those big you know fundamental foundational elements i mean uh, i've heard quoted recently a few times the rc sprawl said something along the lines of you know reform theology can be summed up in this one phrase regeneration mm -hmm. precedes faith and right. i i find Regeneration precedes faith. That that aspect of of Calvinism to me is is one of the weakest, one of the most indefensible. Just because, as you said, you know, there's a couple passages, like you said, I can think of, you know, the, a passage in First John, which I think you have to really wildly miss the context of First John, who he's mm -hmm. writing to, why he's writing to them. To um, yeah. I can't remember exactly what it says, something along the lines of. Um, yeah. Whoever whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, um, mm -hmm. and, and in the context, obviously, he's trying to identify those who are false, you know, who are who are not walking as true Christians versus yeah. those who are. Yeah. Obviously, a true Christian is going to be believing that Jesus is the Christ, uh, somebody yeah. who's you know living out of out of his life, uh, the life of Christ in him, and so so. Anyways, yeah, I think it's very. Uh, difficult to establish. But one thing I wanted to, you know, beyond the specific proof text with regeneration precedes faith, I think my major issue with it is, is this kind of what it does with Christology, I guess I'll put it that way. So you have, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I've, you know, I wasn't a Calvinist. And so I, if, if, Maybe I'm, I phrase this in a way that wouldn't be accurate, but from 
Calvinists describe, define regeneration as life. Like this is this is where God gives spiritual life to the soul, the soul yeah. that was dead. Now he breathes life into it. Yeah. And so when I sit, step back and I think about, okay, the ordo salutis, if that is correct, what is what does that actually mean? That means that God, you know, so we have Jesus, faith in Christ, our relationship, if you think of this like a timeline, you know, you have faith in Christ at this point. At this point, God gives you life. He breathes mm -hmm. life, breathes life into you, makes your soul alive. And then you become connected to Christ by mm -hmm. faith. That life right. enables you to come to Christ. Right. Um, so to, to me, that is a, it seems so simple, but what, what just took place there is that Christ has been differentiated. He's been made something, life has been made something distinct and separate from Christ himself. And, you know, there's so many right. texts that talk, you know, Christ, like Paul will say, when Christ who is our life appears and I am the way, the truth and the life, um, mm -hmm. we're complete in Christ, Colossians 2. Uh, and so all these, you know, I, I just think it just portrays this idea that, you know, God kind of dispenses salvation in a variety of packages. It's like, yes, you mm -hmm. get, you get election obviously before the foundation of the world. And then later mm -hmm. on you get this blessing of regeneration and that, and but those two things really then lead to your subsequent relationship with Christ. And yeah. so Christ becomes sort of this, you know, intermediary step, uh, just one step among many of, of getting you, you know, back in, a reconciled place with with the father if you want to put it that way and so i just think that you know christ is life whoever has the son has life yeah. whoever does not have yeah. the son does not have life and so my right. my question to calvinist has always been like if what what is that life like so there's some kind of spiritual life that's not christ himself um, yeah and so i just i just wanted to put that out there and ask if that's something you've thought about or, or like yeah. How how do you think even like a Calvinist would would hear what I just said and and maybe respond to it? Yeah, I I honestly don't know exactly how they would respond, but because I honestly don't think that a lot of them have actually worked through it. I think that there's a way to explain away anything. <laughs> oh yeah. If they so choose to do that. And that's in with any position that someone doesn't agree with. Um, but I think honestly, they, it's a, it's something they have to wrestle with because if life is given to them first, is that life in Christ? Mm -hmm. Because the order of salutis in the Calvinistic perspective is they are granted life. They're then granted faith and regeneration or sorry, and repentance. And then they believe and they can only believe mm -hmm. because life has happened first and then faith has been deposited and the repentance has been given, and then they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, which is life. So they're, it's mm -hmm. like the cart is before the horse, unless Majorly. there's two elements of life that are going on. And where in the scriptures does it say that? Mm -hmm. Like it does. Jesus doesn't say, and, "I am the life," and regeneration is the life that will come to you before you come to me. Like there's no verse that says that. Yeah. And so, and they, in fact, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, actually, now as you're saying that, it reminds me of at least some some of the responses I've heard from different Calvinists to this. Uh, and that is that they will then go to 
well, there's two, there's two kinds of life. There's, there's regeneration life and then there's eternal life. Um, I've, I've heard, I've heard some, at least I'm not saying all will, but they'll go that direction where, you know, which is, is, is it kind of makes Calvinism kind of makes itself just unfalsifiable because anytime I feel like they're put in a corner and a contradiction is pointed out, they can just kind of, they multiply whatever category that is that is causing the dilemma in their system. It's like, oh, well, well, you know, God loves all people. Well, there's two kinds of love. Oh, well, yeah. you know, God <laughs> has a will that you don't, you know, that you abstain from sexual immorality and that all people be say, oh, well, there's two wills of God. Oh, you're, you're saying that Jesus is life, but somehow we're saying he get, you know, believers get life before Jesus. Well, there's two kinds of life. It just seems like that, that, I don't know, that, making these these <laughs> different kinds of things is just an easy way to to you know slip out of any one of these contradictions but i just i think especially here with with life this is one Absolutely. i would say i just don't think you can do that you can't s distinguish yeah. life as being two yeah. different kinds or sorts of it right. uh, jesus is the find. resurrection and the life and so yeah. And I make this point in my last video on the Calvinism series that um, it is it is uh, election that is really what saves people in the Calvinistic Absolutely. position because God mm -hmm. has foreordained who He's going to save. They will be saved no matter what happens. Like it's it's already determined, it's already purposed, it's ordained, it's decreed. Those people He has chosen arbitrarily. Um, Say these are the ones that are going to come to Christ. So life is automatically given at regeneration, and, and in due time, in His decreed time, they're going to come to Jesus. But Jesus never says. Nowhere in Scripture does it say that uh, election is life. Jesus is life. Je the resurrection and the resurrection and the life. And he's the only way to the Father. And so I really do think that. Jesus would be clear that if that is how it worked, it would be clear. And but every text that I've come across that is the Calvinistic proof text, you have to start with that Calvinism is true and then make that work. And in many cases, you're doing eisegesis and you're isolating that text um, from from the context. And mm -hmm. what I've found, First uh, Corinthians two fourteen is a really good example. Here's the context. And, th and honestly, this is in, uh, maybe this might even be happening in, early in Romans 8, but the context is not talking about soteriology whatsoever. He, Paul is talking to believers around um, uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14. So on both sides of the text, nothing is talked about soteriology. And like, to believe that 1 Corinthians 2.14 is actually communicating a soteriological position would be like Paul going like on a squirrel rabbit trail. Like, oh, yeah. And by the way, you know, did you know that uh, um, you're totally depraved basically is what they would uh, articulate is what that verse is saying. Oh, OK, let me get back to what I was really telling you about. You know what I mean? Like, it's just so it's so funny. Like, but you read it and like, oh, OK, well, that's what it says, because that's what they say it says. And we got to get back to context. And I don't think it's there. I will say this. And something I was appreciative of is that um, my former pastors did agree that there are a lot of pr 
proof texts that they also would say are not the proof texts of Calvinism. So I, w- mm-hmm. I was thankful for that. And there are people out there that are not finding Calvinism behind every nook and cranny of scripture. And then there are those kind of people that do that. Like election is everywhere. Yeah. And all that, all they talk about is just election. See how this could correlate to election. And they just make their whole ministry about Calvinism. And so, yeah, I- I'm thankful yeah. that that's not what I, <laughs> what I dealt with. Yeah, that's good. There's, there are certain texts that I just, uh, I just, kind of go like this when I hear him brought up as like these definitive <laughs> obvious, like Acts 13, 48 is honestly one of them. And it's yeah. kind of another scenario where it's out of, out of nowhere. Luke just decided, Oh, and by the way, uh, yeah. there's only certain people who are chosen to be saved. And all these people that Paul and yeah. the apostles are, you know, rebuking at times for not accepting the gospel and angry at, and mm-hmm. Paul's kind of, you know, rebuking the Jews and saying, okay, well now we're going to go to the Gentiles because you're hard hearted and you didn't believe. Well, actually they couldn't have believed anyways, because they weren't these individuals in that crowd weren't chosen. Uh, and so, yeah. you know, Acts 13, 48 kind of stands out as, as one of those that would just kind of be like, where did that come from? Yeah, I, I mean, Acts thirteen forty eight was the first <clears throat> was uh, sorry the text that convinced me it was true. It was like that was the text, honestly, and and it was the last text I had to work through to to try to oh, figure really? out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so it it was a it 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 was it was uh, the one that held on the longest <laughs> for me. That's um, that's interesting. Well, maybe let's. <sighs> Maybe ex- explain that, like, how did you work through it? Because I think that's kind of a significant, sounds like yeah. then, a, you know, if that's kind of that last thing gripping at your your yeah. ankles as you're trying to go out the door, you, you know, yeah. I, I, and I think this is the case for, for many people. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I say what I just said, I, I don't want that to come across as, oh, only a, an oh. idiot would, would have a hang up with this verse. <laughs> no. That's definitely not the case. No. Um, no. Because it's just one of those things where if you're, if you're in this and that is how you've seen it, it would be, there are these verses that though, you know, when you do understand the context, it's like, Oh, has nothing to do with what he's saying. But when, when that's what you've been taught to see uh, it's, it can be very hard to unsee. Uh, Mm -hmm. So how, how did you unsee Calvinism and and acts 1348? Yeah. And so, um, when I would go to Acts 13, 48, in all complete transparency and honesty, I feel like you can you can read a verse and feel like, okay, I probably understand what the verse is saying. You look at John 3, 16, all right? You know, like there's verses out there that you don't need to read before and after to really understand what the verse is communicating. And I took that same approach with Acts 13, 48, thinking that it was just plain as day clear and I didn't know how to work around it saying what it says. Um, Going back to the text and actually reading it in context, I learned that these are proselytites, Gentiles that were converted over to Judaism um, and they're there the week before. Paul goes to, you know, the week before uh, preaching and they want to be involved. They want to be a part of hearing the message um, because they they're they're true worshipers of of God. And we got to think this is a very unique time in redemptive history because you've got 
you know, the apostles now who are now proclaiming Christ, Jesus is resurrected, he's, and the church is spreading, and the Holy Spirit is, is given now. I mean, it's just, everything's brand new, it's fresh, it's, it's, it's happening for the first time um, that anything has happened. The promises from the Old Testament are now being fulfilled right now in the early church. And, and so you've got true worshipers of God, people that, but they're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the revelation mm -hmm. of the Messiah coming. And Paul, just like he says in Romans 1.16, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it's the power of God to unto salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek. His mission was to go to the Jews first and then, then transition over to the Gentiles. And so he preaches to the Jews first the week prior, and then he brings them in and he basically makes, you know, he reprimands the Jews because you are rejecting the, the, the savior. We're turning now to the Gentiles and, mm -hmm. and he proclaims the gospel to them. And the verse says, and all who were ordained to eternal life believed. And what I've learned even so ever so recently is that in the Greek, it yeah. actually, it, it can be translated both ways. So here's something where I think Calvinists can impose their theology onto the way that translations are put in. And I, I don't know a translation that says it the other way, but doing some research that the, uh, um, the way that it is written, it can be written that those who were ordained to eternal life believe, but it can also be rendered those who believed were ordained to eternal life. That says something completely different. Um, and so, and so I've, I've just even so even been more recently confirmed that, uh, yeah, the way that translations are put together matter and, mm -hmm. and, and it's, we need to make sure that, um, we get the text right. And so grammatically speaking in Greek, um, it, it's more properly communicated that those who believed were ordained to eternal life. And that, that reads completely different. So, right. So, yeah, I've never, so, I've never heard that particular way of handling it, but that's, that's interesting. Um, something I'd like to hear and maybe dive, dive deeper even, into. Even, even if, even if that's not true, those who were ordained to eternal life believed they were already true worshipers of God. And just as Abraham believed in faith, believed by faith, and we see Romans 4 and 5 expound upon that, that it was by faith and, uh, you know, not in Christ, but faith in God for Abraham. It's the same type of faith. Are you a true worshiper of God? And now that the Messiah is here and the call is now to believe on him, those that did really love God are now saying yes. And my John six video really helped me see this even more clearly is that every time that Jesus was telling people that he's the bread of life, he's the way, the truth and the life. And uh, no one comes to the father except through him. And the father is giving believers over to the son. He's talking about the true worshipers that really do love the Lord that are walking, uh, you know, in, you know, with the, uh, in obedience and faithfulness to him, yep. God, the father is handing them over now to the son because the son is going to be magnified and glorified and he's our King. And so 
and this is a unique period yeah. of time because Jesus was, you know, living, you know, the life that we should have lived, not yet died and risen again, but now he has died and risen again. And he's explaining what's actually happening with, with, yeah. um, with believers. And so these yeah. proselytes, these Gentile believers in the one true God now are awaiting the Messiah, just like the Jews are, but they saw it. They, they were true worshipers and they put place their faith and trust in Jesus. And, you know, so in a sense they were already saved, but now they're giving the, they were given the Holy spirit as a result of the promise uh, from Acts two being fulfilled and um, and putting their faith and trust in Jesus. So that's that's what I see happening in in the scriptures yeah. that way. I well, that's I think that's such an important category to recognize, to acknowledge, to have on a category of people to have at least on the table as one is considering passages like Acts Acts thirteen forty eight and and then yeah. especially like the the Gospel of John passages, John six and John ten, because you know I'll. I, I know many reformed uh, uh, pastors and teachers will recognize that yes, there were, there did exist this category that you're describing true worshipers of God, you know, when Jesus showed up on the scene, but you know, I, it seems as if none of them have even been willing to consider that, that, well, what, what would happen if I put those people in the category of the sheep? for instance, right. that Jesus refers to. Right. And the those who are hearing and learning from the Father and therefore being drawn to Christ in John 6. Right. Like So yeah, when I look at Acts 13, 48, John 6, John 10, this concept of Jesus having sheep who belong to him, like I, I think it's, as you're saying, there is this category of people that has to be considered, this category of true worshipers of God who existed when Jesus showed up on the scene, when the New Testament, the New Covenant kind of came in uh, into the picture. And, uh, you know, you have to you have to realize that they're coming from Old Testament times. There were faithful Jews who had no real concept, of, especially a full concept, a full picture of the Messiah, that he would look anything like Jesus's life and his ultimate death, resurrection, that mm -hmm. that was not something they had a concept of really, um, except right. in in little, you know, snippets that you they might have picked up on from Isaiah 53 and, and things like mm -hmm. that. But um, there were people like David, like Abraham, people who with the level, the measure of light that they had been given under the old covenant, they had been faithful to that. They had been faithful yeah to the law of Moses, uh, I think ultimately that comes down to that they they were walking in the footsteps of the faith of Abraham, which is what, according to Paul in the New Testament, is what makes one a, a true Jew, uh, mm -hmm. a, a, a true Israelite. And so, yeah. um, so it's, you know, it's like the, it's this principle that you see laid out in the New Testament. To him who has, more mm -hmm. will be given. Uh, to him who does not have, even what he has, will be taken away. Well, to me, it's like that's that's John six, that's Acts thirteen forty eight. It's yeah, you have this category of people who were positioned, their hearts were not in a hardened, calloused, rebellious state, so that when the gospel was presented to them, as Jesus said, "My sheep hear my voice." So those who had already been humbly hearing and learning from the Father would naturally be drawn to the Son. They would yeah. recognize the voice of the shepherd that they had already been listening to and yeah. was now actually here in front of them in human form. Um, and so I just think, you know, 
we don't have time as much as I'd love to, to just dive in the tax 1348 and walk exegete the passage. Cause I know one, one, I'm sure one, one accusation that will be leveled against this little discussion that we've had about Acts 1348 and, and whatever commentary, whatever opinions we've um, communicated about it will be, well, that's not exegesis, exegete the text and walk through the whole text. It's like, well, mm -hmm. If that was the purpose, if we had the time, we would love to do that. We can't. We're just having a kind of a passing conversation that wasn't even planned to take place about Acts 1348. Right. But yeah. lastly, about that, I, I would just say that to me, Acts 1348 should initially cause us to have a lot more questions than it should cause us to have this immediate, oh, well, there it is. There's God yeah. chose us for eternal life. And it's, you know, there's two things about it. There's one. The question of who who did the appointing, you know, when you look at that that word, um, whether you interpret it appointed, ordained, um, uh, devoted, uh, is another way you could um, mm -hmm. interpret it. Set, establish, mm -hmm. but it, it's open ended as to who's doing the appointing. Um, and yeah. I think if you look in the context back, uh, just like two verses earlier, where you see that. Again, the apostles are rebuking the Jews saying, since you consider yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going to the Gentiles and then to mm -hmm. the Gentiles who receive it. He's saying, he says, those who are ordained to eternal life. So I just, I just think it's at least worth asking, is there a parallel there? Is there some mm -hmm. sort of connection between the rebuke yeah. being given to the <clears throat> hardened Jews who are rejecting the gospel and therefore yeah. judging themselves not worthy of eternal life. And those yeah. receptive, humble, who were appointed or devoted to eternal life. Mm -hmm. So who's doing the appointing? And then the other question is when? <laughs> when did this appointing take place? When did it take place? Because yeah. this isn't the word foreordained or predetermined. Yeah. There's no mention of before the ages began. It's yeah. open-ended as to when, whatever this appointment is, and whoever yeah. did this appointment, well, when did it happen? Who right. did it? And and when did they do it? Um, mm -hmm. And so I just think, you know, maybe just... Uh, uh, if you have other thoughts, you can share share those about that. But I just mm -hmm. I, I would just want to leave people with that um, yeah. as as kind of going along the lines of you saying, go and be a good Berean. Just do yeah. that. Go and be a Berean with Acts 1348 and say, is yeah. this really as clear yeah. as maybe I've been led to believe? Because I just I don't think it is. Yeah. And there's just so many statements in Scripture, like Paul persuading people. He's persuading people in the book of Acts to to and, and compelling them to come to Christ. Like, and if anyone has their theology right, I would you know I would I would probably say it's Paul. You know, of any man, mm -hmm. that's not Jesus. If anyone has their theology right, it's probably Paul. And and for Paul to not only in Acts try to be persuading people, like. Well, if God has ordained from eternity past who he's going to choose, what would be the purpose of of trying to persuade people? I understand, like most Calvinists would say that you need to just go be obedient. The Great Commission is just obedience to go out. You don't know who the elect are. And I would say the same thing for Paul if that interpretation is true. But why would they need to persuade? Like, yeah. He still that, knows that there's elect people who will yeah, hear yeah. unavoidably. You can just communicate yeah. what you need to communicate. There's no need and urgency to persuade anyone because God will has ordained uh, whoever he will bring 
to himself. And we're just the means to follow through with an obedient call to go preach the gospel. So there's no need to persuade anyone, but yet Paul is persuading people. And again, Paul is lamenting in the beginning of Romans 9, almost as if like he has more love for his Jewish uh, brothers and sisters that are rejecting the gospel, saying that he wished that he could have his own life sacrificed for the sake of them. Well, that doesn't... So Paul loves these people more than God does? If Paul has his yeah. theology correct, then he's going to communicate what is Calvinistic, you know, if that is the truth. God has decreed that you guys are not going to believe, and some of you will, and some of you won't, and whoever he wills, it's for his glory, and I accept it. It's not my, it's not my job, not my control. Why would Paul make statements to say that he wished that he could be a sacrifice for them so that they could they could believe if he knows that's not how, you know what I mean? It, God's not going to work that way. It doesn't make, it, so there's so many things like that, um, that, that don't make sense. And so, I mean, these little statements along the way and all throughout scripture are little pebbles in the shoe of people that are wrestling through Calvinistic theology to determine, okay, is this true? And, and probably the biggest Thing that you know also helped me is going into the history of church history and then learning where did all of this come about and knowing that there are like 400 years after the early church began that none of this was even talked about and it was kind of risen to the top through augustine as the reason why this is all now being brought out and then from there knowing his past knowing his history in Manichaeanism, Gnosticism, Stoicism, all of those things are kind of woven in. If you understand those theologies and, and those religions, and you could see how these things are all kind of tied to that. And, and so I think it's a wrong hermeneutic to believe that, but we don't wrestle with it. There was a series that, uh, that I went through when I was at the church that talked about the history of the Bible and, it just went, and one of the greatest minds of you know church history is um, is uh, is Augustine, and so you you start with this idea that like Augustine is good, and he and he knows he's drawn out a lot of good things from the scriptures, and people are sitting there taken back, maybe hearing this for the first time. Oh, okay, well, so he must be a good guy. He must he must have things correct. Same thing with John Calvin, Martin Luther. And there's just so much that is not told. And so it almost feels like, hey, we're not going to tell you the things that we that maybe would discredit that what they've brought out and how they interpret scripture. We're going to tell you all the things that we agree with and why we think they're, yeah. these men are held at such a high pedestal um, that way. So yeah, I'm not going to yeah. go as far to say that they were not believers, you know, because I don't know. I don't know their hearts. I was not there. Um, but I would, but I would say that what they're teaching is not scriptural. Yeah. Yeah. And also if Paul's great emphasis in first Corinthians 13, if I don't have love, if I have all knowledge and everything else, but I don't, don't have love, then I am nothing. And yeah. it does, it does raise some questions. How could, what, what does it mean that, that, 
that people that we look up to and are revering as those who like have kind of given us these deeper insights into scripture and to the sovereignty of God and and the Mm -hmm. the truth of what the gospel is really all about. Mm -hmm. But they were, you know, burning heretics at at the stake and having people put to death. And, and, and again, I'm not, I'm not making any statements about their eternal destiny and salvation because I think things are subjective in a sense to, I I don't know what would be an accurate comparison as far as like, like, uh, you know, stumbling and struggling with sin and and weakness of the flesh, you know, in that day compared to what it is now. But, you know, that's, that's, that's something at least worth considering. And, and again, this is, you know, it's, it's difficult to talk about without coming across as just throwing out, non-Calvinist rhetoric. And that's not the point. This is just an invitation to consider these things because as you're saying what you just said, I think about, I think about many Christian apologists who would quickly point out the, the lifestyle and the sins of like a Joseph Smith and say, see, like, how can you trust anything? He says, just throw them out, throw out everything. He says, he's obviously, Obviously yeah. in error. This is obviously a false prophet. This is obviously somebody we should not listen to because he did X, Y, and Z. He had multiple wives. He he was yeah. greedy and dishonest, and 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 so on yeah. and so forth. And so it's like, well, what? Maybe maybe there's a bit of a double standard there um, in these mm-hmm. scenarios. Um, maybe mm-hmm. maybe we shouldn't look at Calvin and others as these somewhat arbiters of truth. And, and, you know, there's a lot of Calvinists who haven't even read Calvin. And so I know they'll hear me and say, well, I don't, John Calvin has nothing to do with my Calvinism. And so I, I get that. Um, but again, I guess, I guess just this, <laughs> I, I think there are some things here worth considering. And I suppose this would yeah. come back to, I do think there is that culture of elevating these men to, to a level that, that they, mm-hmm. they shouldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, just some questions here, hopefully worth worth thinking about. Yeah, absolutely. You were just talking about uh, Paul and somewhat of the absurdity that would seem to be going on in some of these scenarios where you have Paul, um, you know, preaching to these people who reject the gospel, but expressing frustration. And it would just seem like, you know, if I was somebody under Paul at that time watching him, I had been trained by Paul and, you know, reformed quote unquote theology, uh, obviously would not have been called that. But if I, if I had been taught by Paul and Paul had held the doctrines of, of grace, as we understand them today, like that was in line with how he thought. And, and those who followed Paul knew that it was understood that there are, there is an elect people. There are those chosen who, who will accept and embrace the gospel because they were preordained for just that. And only they will be given the, the regenerative life, making mm-hmm. their souls alive so that they can even have the faith to, to respond. Dead people cannot do anything other than reject and hate the gospel. If mm-hmm. that's the theology that Paul was approaching these, you know, uh, evangelistic moments with it, it it just, it warrants asking the question, Paul, why are you so frustrated with these people? You know, why are you expressing, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, frustration yeah. and disapproval and like, like anger at these people who are rejecting the gospel? It's like, you, 
you know, right? You should know better than any of us that this right. is exactly yeah. what you should expect. This is exactly what's going to happen. You're entering into this knowing full well, likely most of these people, they're God haters. They're, they're mm -hmm. born hardened and blind and they can do nothing other than mm -hmm. hate God. Those in the flesh can only hate God. Mm -hmm. And so Paul, why are you acting surprised or shocked or, or frustrated even? Mm -hmm. um, it would just seem like if you're holding consistently your theology in your head, as you're being as the message of the gospel you're presenting is being rejected, mm -hmm. you should be somewhat like, okay, well, I'm just going to move on. Then apparently those are non non elect people, and so th so there's that. And then as you mentioned, also the Romans nine wishing that those who seemingly he goes on in Romans nine to describe as you know reprobate, um, uh, passed over, mm -hmm. uh, whether you're double predestinarian or not, or, or mm -hmm. either passed over or just predetermined for this, this fate. He goes mm -hmm. on in Romans 9 to kind of describe that this is the condition of these Jews. This is who they are. But yet right. he opens up the chapter by saying, I wish I could, you know, give myself for them. I wish I could be a curse and cut off from Christ mm -hmm. in their place in in the place of these non-elect you know, unregenerate, reprobate mm -hmm. right. uh, people that God chose before the foundation of the world to hate rather than love. Um, yeah. And so, again, it just seems like Paul, what, what are you, what are you doing? Like, are you who doing? are you, <laughs> know, what are you to answer back to God? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent. And that's what's so interesting about people that do really adhere to they 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 understand and i'm not talking about people that don't understand because there are definitely people i think that it, again they just have a cognitive dissonance but there are people that are very aware and i've seen it in even in my comments section where you know i'm a decreed ordained son of god you know like eternity past and you're and they're adamant of like i i'm preaching uh a false gospel. I'm unregenerate uh, as a result of what I'm saying. And I, it part of me is, is just scratching my head. Like you realize that in your position, I can do nothing other. Like if I really am an unregenerate person, I am only doing so because God has decreed that to be the yeah. case. So there's you are nothing a lion eating me. Yeah. Yeah. Why are you so persistent to call me out? if literally nothing can be done unless God does something in me first, he's not going, you know what I mean? So it just, it, yeah. it doesn't make sense that they're so persistent. Some people, I will say I have appreciated, there's been very few, very few comments I've received that go this way. I'm a Calvinist and I'm here to learn thank you iron sh sharpens iron like yeah that's great that we we can work with that and one thing i want to advocate which I, I don't think i've actually utilized this statement <clears throat> yeah but something that i would i would want to heighten is that i'm not here to be the holy spirit for anybody i'm mm -hmm. i'm here to just the main message i want people to get is to go back to the word and to be a good studier of the word and and let the Holy Spirit teach you. And 
then, you know, people then have said, well, so there's no, some of the comments I've gotten as a response to people I've talked to in person about this has been, so, well, teachers and preachers are given for the edification of the body. So are we just supposed to be, you know, you and your Bible under a tree and that's the only way that you're going to learn? No, but we are to take everything that we hear, test the spirit, see if it's true. We're called to be discerning. We're called to do our own studies. We can't just assume someone else's theology because it sounds logical and correct. Like we're to do our own studies. We're to show ourselves approved that we know what the word of God says. And that's just greatly lacking, I think, in so many ways. And part of it is by nature of the enemy creating an environment where we have so many distractions, we ha our, our lives are continually busier and busier because I think the nature of things of, of what the, the devil, if he can pull you in this way or that way um, and to get you off focus, to, to have your mind always consumed with information and to not to be, you know, have that quiet time and to rest and to just read God's word. Some people don't even have the ability to sit and just read anymore because they're so distracted and stimulated by all of these things that are going on. There's so many things that you can get yourself involved in. And, you know, especially at least here in the West. And so it's just one of those tools. So when you go to the church and you hear your pastor who might be a Calvinist, you know, who has been spending the time <clears throat> in the word, and, but teaches you Calvinism along the way, you assume that they're they're true because you are so inundated with so much stuff and so much information and jobs and uh, hobbies or whatever else. You're you know it's it's a lack of prioritizing time. My call is to prioritize your time, get back into the Word, study, and don't just take what people say at face value. I mean, even everything we say, don't just hear us and mm -hmm. say, okay, I accept that. Okay, work it, work it out, you know, actually figure it out yourself, like be convinced in your own mind what the scriptures are saying. And I realize that might lean people Calvinistically. Um, it, I mean, it may um, because there's influence there and, and they might not be able to remove the glasses to, to go to the text properly. I don't know. So, um, you know, but it's, it's something that, you know, you want to go to the scriptures and, and, and work out. And so, I don't know, that's, that's where I land um, in terms of just helping people, encouraging them to get into the word. I mean, there's so many, there's so many resources we have now more than ever. There's so many good free resources of Bible study tools. Learn, you can learn the Greek. Um, you don't have to go to seminary, um, although not that it's bad or wrong to do that. But I mean, there's so many good resources and some that might cost some money, but it's so, but even if you do have to spend some money, it's so worth the investment to really know the Bible correctly. Another thing too, is you got to be careful with commentaries if for anyone that's again, just maybe new Christian baby in their faith, don't know a lot about scripture. Maybe they've been a Christian for a long time, but they've not been in a, in a church that has really taught the word of God. Um, expositionally, contextually, maybe they're more um, like thematic, you know, we're going to talk about love and we're going to do these series on love or whatever the case. You're not really learning how to read the Bible. And I think there's a lot of churches that are just also not doing that as well. And so they're not teaching people, this is hermeneutics. This is how you want to read in context. There's different genres of the Bible that you need to be aware of. 
and how to understand how to read genres. I mean, there's so much there that I think the church could be doing to help people really get back into the word. And sadly, I've, I've seen and heard pastors say, um, like, yes, like I've had people talk to me. It's good that you're telling people to go into the word, but we want to just teach them the truth. But that truth is Calvinism. Let's, let's take a pause on doing that. I mean, in the church and let's help people understand how to read their Bibles and let them do go through that because it's overwhelming. When, when I was younger and if I'd read the scriptures, I'm like, I don't know what I'm reading. I don't know what to pull out. I don't know what's true or not. I had no idea like, okay, Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay. That's such a good verse for me. And you know, like that's not about me, you know, and it took me a long time to figure out that verse was not explicitly about me. Are there principles? Does God do, do care about me as a you know believer in Christ? Yes. But you know what I mean? There's just these different things that you just need to learn how to understand and interpret the Bible correctly. I think it's just lacking greatly. So I think that's also a reason why Calvinism has reigned as strong as it has in our time. Yeah, I, I, I also think there's something maybe to be said or maybe a lot <laughs> to be said about learning how to encourage people toward, you know, kind of as you've, you've already mentioned, you, you as an individual Christian member of the body of Christ have the Holy Spirit who is the teacher. And I, you know, what does it, what does it look like to push people toward, you know, intimate knowledge of God that I think really is Christianity. It's, mm -hmm. it's knowing God loves me, not just, I know this as a doctrinal position that I can, you know, write down and, you know, expound upon in a, a book, but I know it. I, I, uh, I, I know it intimately in the same way that, you know, I could, I can know my wife has red hair and I can describe red hair, what it looks like. And I can write all about that, but at the same time, not know my wife. And so mm -hmm. I think Christianity is, is, is so much more about that intimacy, that intimate knowing, um, mm -hmm. uh, which involves having right thoughts, right thinking doctrinally about God, about the gospel, obviously, mm -hmm. but you know, encouraging people to know that, Hey, one, you don't have to have all this figured out. Uh, you know, what, what, what matters most is that you are having that intimate connection with God and knowing that through that relational dynamic, he can teach you things that are first Corinthians two hit the hidden things of God that we can't having these discussions, we cannot articulate in words and cause somebody to understand, but an understanding and insight, a depth of knowledge that comes from like an inward revealing an illumination of the heart and the mind that only comes by the spirit of God, where he reveals to us that which has, that no man has seen, which no man has heard things that have not entered into the heart of man. These are the things he has revealed to us by his spirit. And so, yeah. Um, I just think there's there's something there about, you know, what's the balance between focusing on 
theology, quote unquote, mm-hmm. doctrine, hermeneutics, and and um, as as sort of our method of of understanding God and 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 what is the level to which we should say, you know, this this <laughs> is how you're going to get that. Because I guess I say that because just more from a personal experience, I feel like the most profound times where I've been looking at the Bible and had these, oh my goodness, I have never seen this before. And I'm seeing, I know what this is saying. And it's like the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It's like it becomes alive. And I think many Christians will know what I'm talking about when I talk, when I express that, that, that didn't come from, you know, having, having deep theological discussion or, 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 you know, any of these things that so often I think we get caught up in. Um, Mm -hmm. It came from sitting on my bed by myself. I was pretty new as a, as a, uh, uh, you know, really personalizing Christianity for myself, but I just found myself being (laughs) impacted by the Holy spirit and these things were becoming alive. And so, Mm -hmm. so I don't, I guess there's just, what's the balance between not getting people to think that I have to learn Greek. I have to do all this. It's like, well, no, you, you, not everybody's going to do that. Um, right. Yeah. But at the same time, we can, we can end up in such damaging places when we don't, mm-hmm. you know, when we don't consider this, this other side, this, this, yeah. this other approach, if I, I don't know if I even want to call it that, but um, yeah. so it's not one or the other, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, I just think that, I guess for me in these conversations uh, that I see going on on Twitter and in the YouTube comments, it just seems like it's, it seems like I see people and even myself sometimes forgetting that, wait a minute, the Holy spirit is really the teacher. Um, And so, yeah, I don't know that I have a clear, a clear thought there kind of just talking and put that out there and see what you, you make of all that. Yeah. And I also know you have to go here in a minute so we can wrap it up. Yeah. Well, what I would say to that person, because some people, and this is not to make, put any burdens on people that don't need to be there. This is, you know, on one hand, we are called to give an account and, and to, for the hope that it, that lies within us. So we, we, we want to be able to defend the, the faith, understand why we believe what we believe. Those are all good things to work through, but will we understand all things perfectly? No, this side of heaven, you know, I, I don't think so. And but what's encouraging is that is all of this doctrine and theology and understanding Greek, is it necessary? I look at the, the thief on the cross that Jesus says, today you will you will be in paradise. How much doctrine and theology did he have? Probably almost nothing, <laughs> you know, but he Right. I don't know what all was going on, but he placed his trust that this is the Savior, you know, and and Jesus responded, you will be with me in paradise. And Mm -hmm. and so that's how amazing God is and how how good his grace is that, yes, on one hand, we don't need to have, you know, stacks of books and, you know, have read and all of this stuff. Um, to understand God, to understand the gospel, to be saved. But on the other hand, it's we should strive while we have time on earth. We should devote time to learning his word better. 
and to learning who he is and what he's done and um, what commands and things that we can learn to walk in obedience and faithfulness to him in his word. So it's yes and, and both, you know what I mean? So, yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, that, yeah. that's how I would look at it. Yeah. And when it comes to these sort of situations and conversations where you have doctrines and theologies being propagated that, you know, to our side at least are problematic and troublesome. That is obviously one place where the Greek and the book stacks of, of books become a little bit more important because it, you know, you can't just at that point say, well, God revealed to me personally on my bed that uh, an interpretation of, of Romans nine, that's not what you said. It's like, well, that's, right. that's nice and all uh, yeah. uh, go, go get in line with Joseph Smith and, and, you know, <laughs> Uh, but tell me what what is that and does it line up with with you know rational logical argumentation and the context and the the language and all that and so so yeah, mm -hmm. definitely not not one or the other mm -hmm. well i know our intent was to go through romans uh 8 <laughs> and that kind of flew out we the window we may not make it yeah we, we may not make it but i mean i will say uh, th there's two elements here i think within romans 8 that uh, you know, there's the total depravity, you know, mm -hmm. is a proof text in, in verses seven and eight. Um, and then there's the golden chain of redemption, uh, verses 28 through 30. And so, I don't know, do you have, do you have one? We were definitely not going to expose well, yeah, so, it. So, so yeah, again, we don't have, I know you don't have a ton of time, but I, if you could just give like your, whatever you're able to to communicate about the golden chain, because I think this mm -hmm. is this is one that uh, people have asked me quite a bit about, and I'm I'm still working through it personally, trying to figure out what mm -hmm. you know, how do I handle it? There's there's yeah. certain ways of handling it that would see you know when he starts out by saying those who God foreknew yeah. that it's it's it shouldn't be taken in such again an esoteric kind of uh, eternal mystery mm -hmm. sort of way, but just know got those, the old Testament saints, those that God know knew before look mm -hmm. at how he, and I find that to be very compelling, uh, as, as one way of handling it. Um, mm -hmm. but all that say, I'm not, I'm not fully settled. And so I would, yeah. I would love to hear what your take on it, um, yeah. is. Yeah. Well, I would, I would say that, you know, in all understanding of any text, I have, it's a working position like currently i'm going to hold to this but i think it's always a, a good thing for us especially with texts that are harder to work through is always have the mindset of i want to be a learner and always continue to go back and learn it, it's good it, it feels good to be settled this is what the text says there are some texts in scripture that are just those um harder texts to just work through not that this necessarily is one, but because this is such a hot topic, you know, I'm always willing to reevaluate and always question, okay, did I properly understand things? I'm always willing to do that. So, so I'm going to read it really quick, just um, so, so our listeners can just know it. So um, it really starts in 29, but I'll go to 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, he also called, and whom he called, he also justified, and whom he justified, 
These he also glorified. And then it shifts to a ne- another point um, in that. Now, what I see Paul laying out the case in Romans is, you know, the gospel is is out there to the Jew and the Gentile um, in, in chapter one. Um, there's the rejection in chapter two of the Jews. Paul's telling what that's taking place. And then that all are sinners, basically, in chapter three. Four and five talk about faith and justification. Chapter six um, and uh, and seven are building up the case of like this, you know, Paul in chapter seven is this internal working of like, I do the things I don't want to do, you know, kind of thing. And there's a lot of like arguments that Paul brings up, almost like he's he's prepared in advance. These are, I know, are going to be some of the questions that people ask me. So I'm going to present them to you and then I'll give you a response as to mm-hmm. what, how to think through this biblically and properly. So he's doing a lot of that as uh, in, in the book of Romans. And so you get to chapter eight and there's a strong emphasis of what God has done through the power of the spirit and the fact that we are struggle, like we're struggling saints. Like we are going mm-hmm. to wrestle with um, hard times Um, we're going to wrestle with sin, you know, like it's, but there's power in Christ. And so as we see, like, you know, we're free from indwelling sin, although yet we still sin, um, we have life because of the spirit. So he's communicating to the Roman church. If you are in Christ, you're a new creation. Although that's not explicitly here in this, in this chapter, it's essentially what he's saying. And then we have sonship with Christ and he talks about adoption. And what's interesting with adoption is that, you know, the Calvinist would say um, that you are adopted into the family of God. And yes, that's true. Um, uh, believers are, but the adoption would be that foreordaining, uh, you know, I'm choosing to bring you into my family from an election standpoint, where mm-hmm. if you look at verse 23 of Romans eight, uh, not only that, but we are, we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption. And then it clarifies what adoption is the redemption of our body. And so anytime the scriptures say, this is what the definition is, we got to pay attention. Like, okay, that's, that's what the scripture is saying. Adoption is the redemption of our body. We're talking about the resur- resurrection. And then that, that lines up with what is going on. We are free from suffering uh, in future glory. So this whole element of uh, justification, glorification, that's going to be a future reality for believers in Christ. Then following that, he finishes up chapter eight. And again, there was no chapters and verses and things like that. But he finishes up this, this section by saying nothing will separate the believer from God. The love of God is, is going to keep you if you're in christ you are going to be kept in him free nothing you know um is going to separate you from god and you know verse mm-hmm. um 38 i am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of god and how much of an encouragement that would be for the Roman church that are facing persecution. The early church fought a lot of persecution. So there's a lot of like, hey, struggling is a part of the Christian walk. 
And we're so not used to that here in the West because we've lived a pretty easy life being a Christian. But I know that people over in China, Christians over in China and other places that Christianity is banned and you're either um, you're either put in prison or maybe even killed as a result of believing it, they would understand this, this encouragement way better than we do. But this is another one of those things like when you get to verse 29 and 30, Paul contextually is talking about providing encouragement for the believer that if you're in Christ, yes, you will f- suffer. There will be a struggle. However, God will make He's not, you're not going to be separated from God as a result of anything that can happen here on earth in that sense. Mm-hmm. So it's not a soteriological perspective that Paul is drawing out here. And even um, even if you look at you know those whom he foreknew, does God know all things? Yes. I, I do take the position that he's talking about Old Testament saints um, in, in this regard. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son um, and that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And then we get into the word predestination, predestined, and that's utilized three times in the scriptures, uh, um, maybe four. It's two in Romans and I think also two in Ephesians chapter one. But two in Romans here in 29 and 30 says um, that he predestined those whom he called he uh, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So are we talking predestined to salvation? No, it's predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He's already which talking is, to believers. Which is adoption, it, right? The glorification yeah. of the body being made just like Christ at his coming when we see him. Yes. Be made just as he is. Yeah. Yeah. The sanctification process that any believer is on you know, God is working in them through this power of the Spirit and conforming believers to be like Christ. And that's what the text is saying. Nowhere does it say ex- ex- explicitly that um, God is predestinating people to salvation. doesn't say that. But when you say that's what it means, and then you go to the text and say, there it is, predestinating people to salvation. And people that don't know any better, oh, that's what that means? Oh, okay. And mm-hmm. a lot of seminaries will do that as well. There's a book, and I forget what it's called, but it's on my first video that I had posted on why I'm no longer a Calvinist. Literally, the book that is taught in seminaries will appeal to Augustine that he had the proper understanding of what predestination means, and they just assume that it's correct. So you take these, these men that want to know God, they want to get into the ministry, they feel a calling on their life to go preach the gospel and to help shepherd uh, a flock of people now taught this is what predestination means. What do you think they're going to do when they come to the text and they see the word predestination? They're probably going to be a little bit predisposed to believing the Augustinian interpretation of predestination. And nowhere in the scriptures does it ever say you are predestined destined to salvation from before before the foundation of the world nowhere does it explicitly say that so or or predestined to be in christ is a is a is another way to put it like you you have been chosen to get into christ um 
Absolutely. I have to go. <laughs> okay. Okay. I could well, talk all day, brother. <laughs> I know. I can, I can this too. Is so, this I is can so too. good. We'll have to make this a regular thing. Yeah. Th- I would, I would love to, uh, yeah, I could go in 15 different directions right now. And I also yeah. know that people listening, that's where their minds are going to, especially those who yeah. are contrary to, to what we're saying. They're, they're going to be thinking, Oh, well, what about this? And what about that? And, Oh, you just oh, yeah. said this refers sure. to the old Testament saints or so mm-hmm. we know we understand that this, this isn't an end all <laughs> argument that we presented in any, in any way. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, all we did here, I think is, is hopefully set up some questions and, and pushed you to mm-hmm. say, one to have questions for us uh, in terms of well how can you say that with this verse or how you know but also hopefully we've said some things that would make you question uh and at least be open to the possibility of saying well m- maybe i should take a relook at acts thirteen forty eight. maybe i should take a relook yeah. at regeneration precedes faith um yeah. and so yeah that would be all I guess I could offer at this point, knowing that we can't fully unpack Romans 8 as deeply as we'd like for time res- uh, constraints or, or any of these other passages. But hopefully we can get to uh, some more of this in, in the future. So, yeah. Jason, do you have any final thoughts you, you want to uh, conclude with here? Only don't take what we've said at face value. Uh, I mean, you can chew on it, but go and do your own studies and go back to the word. And, and trust the word at what it says, but go and be a good Brian. Well, thanks a lot, Jason. And uh, make sure if you haven't you. already, go check out uh, Jason's YouTube channel, Living Christian, which I'll link to in the description below. He's got a lot of great content already on Calvinism, and I'm sure there's probably uh, more to come. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Jordan. I, I've, I've, had yep. a, I've had a blast. Yeah, me too. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced by Great Life Studios and you want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. There have been a handful of people that have jumped on to support on a monthly basis in the past month or so, and I just want to say thank you to all of you. Thank you also to Burns Cornerstone Community Church and all the other monthly financial supporters who make it possible for me to do what I'm doing. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people.